Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Would you guys give a foundation welcome to our sister Dorothy, who's going to read scripture for us? Acts 5, 12 through 42. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. The priests and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. When the high priest and his officials arrived, they covened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for the trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported, the jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside, but when we opened the gates, no one was there. When the captain of the temple guard and the leading priests heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with the startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple preaching the people, or teaching the people. The captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey him. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, Men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow, Thaddeus, who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed, and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely by their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. 
The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. Isn't it amazing how just a straightforward reading of the scripture seems to be powerful enough on its own? And yet, that same scripture still tells us to teach it and explain it. Some of us are trying to figure out what we think of Jesus. We've not decided yet whether we want to worship him or not. Some of us are brand new Christians. And some of us are in the dangerous place of having been a Christian a long time and we think we know it all. No, just me? Okay, all right. The Word of God is sharper than a scalpel, and it reminds us every time we interact with it, oh, Greg, I'm not done working on you, <laughs> right? You think you arrived, that's a dangerous thing indeed. How, uh, what a beautiful text. First of all, I want to say I'm preaching a two-point sermon today. And there are at least nine powerful things in that passage. Here's why seven of them are not making it into the sermon. We saw, if you've been paying attention, if you've studied the book of Acts yourself, we saw a lot of themes that have shown up a lot already. We saw an unbelievable boldness. We saw the miraculous. We saw the Sanhedrin put in their place. We saw them raging against a God that they say that they worship. All of these big themes have already been covered in previous sermons. I'm sorry, Glenn, I left you high and dry. If you need a copy of God's Word, please put a hand up. Glenn's going to bring you a Bible to make sure you got one so you can uh, journey through this passage with us. We can all do it together. So I'm trying, but the reason we're only preaching two points is because these are things that I felt like were relatively unique to the text, or at least we've not seen these in the, gospel, in the book of Acts so far. Does that make sense? Okay. I want to take a look at verse 28 again. Verse 28. Didn't we tell you never again to teach in this man's name? These guys are not used to being disobeyed. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. <laughs> it's a good thing Peter's not as snarky as me. Peter could have so easily said, make you responsible? What are you talking? <laughs> how, many, how many Roman soldiers are in this town? I could go ask them right now, hey, who put you up to this? Everybody knows you were behind this. What about Pilate, who washed his hands of the situation? Should I ask Pilate? There's so much objective right now evidence that you guys did this. His blood is on your hands, and you're saying you want to make us responsible for his death. The religious leaders are terrified of the guilt of Christ's cross. And I, I wonder 2,000 years later if we're in the same spot or a different one. Here's your blank, note takers. My guilt at the cross is not a threat when I believe the gospel. 
My guilt at the cross is not a threat when I believe the gospel. You see, the cultural winds of the 21st century are I can't be guilty because what's right for me is what's right for me. So we get rid of, we expunge all guilt from ourselves through a weird pluralistic ethic which holds no water whatsoever. Had a conversation with a guy in a Starbucks a decade ago. He told me he believed in moral relativity. And I said, what happens when your daughter is driving through this intersection here and a guy runs red and kills her? At the defense, do you want to hear him saying that to him, red means go? Is that going to fly in a court of law? Even today, with all the crazy, anybody here think you could defend yourself in an American court saying red means go to me in my feelings, therefore I killed somebody, therefore they were actually at wrong. Because to me, green means stop, and she was, she was running a green. We expunge guilt by saying we get to be in charge of our own little reality. These guys are doing a similar version of the same thing. They are assuming that they are not guilty of the death of Jesus. We're the good guys, Peter and John. We're the moral people. We teach at seminary. How could we be guilty of killing? No, no. We rightly condemned a heretic. He was apostate. He wasn't God, but he said he was. That's terrible. That's the worst. Bystepping evidence like, you know, walking on water, healing the blind and the lame and raising the dead. Bystepping all of that evidence. And guess what? They're also bystepping. The empty tomb. Conveniently ignoring evidence, talking about a dead Jesus and saying, these guys are trying to make us guilty of something. But you know what? If somebody had just told me, and if I believed it, that a sovereign, wise, loving God used my murder of Jesus to forgive me, then I wouldn't have to be afraid of my guilt. Yes, I am guilty. And yes, I am loved. That's the gospel. Our brother Tim Keller, who pastored Redeemer Presbyterian for 33 years, went to be with the Lord last May. He says this, and his son puts it out on Facebook regularly. We are more sinful than we ever dared imagine and more loved than we ever dared hope. That is the gospel. The religious leaders do not believe that Jesus came to die in their place. That's the actual problem in this text. Of course you're going to be defensive about guilt if you don't see a solution to it. If there's no hope of the guilt being absolved, who could, think of this from their perspective, highly religious folks, who could possibly forgive you if you killed God? Who could possibly forgive you if you just killed a prophet? These guys in their conversations with Jesus a couple years earlier had already distanced themselves a little bit, talking about their forefathers killing the prophets in Jerusalem hundreds of years earlier. Who could possibly forgive a sin like that? Unless the power of the cross is stronger than the hammer and the nails. And that is the claim of Christianity. This is why Mel Gibson put his own hand to hold the nail 
He filmed his own hand when he, when he made the Passion of the Christ. This is why 500 years ago, our brother Rembrandt painted himself up there pulling the body of Jesus down off the cross and having a hammer in his hand. Christians aren't afraid to say, I killed him. I know I did. If you're a human, you killed him. It was in his sovereign will, it was in his sovereign wisdom to allow his children that he loved so much, that he created, he put his image in him, he gives them free will, and we rebel against him and we kill God. How do we know we all killed God? Jesus said so before we did it. There was an owner of a vineyard. It's time to pay, get, receive his portion of the grapes, and so he sends a messenger. That guy gets assaulted. Sends another messenger to collect, he gets assaulted. Finally, he sends his own son, and they kill him. Jesus told that story before the cross. Jesus knew exactly what an all-wise triune God were planning to do to save humanity. Jesus, the son, is going to die for who? The nice people? We should know we're not all... Hebrew scholars or read Hebrew scholars, but wine was a very consistent symbol of Israel. It was a symbol of being blessed and fruitful. So the fact that it's a vineyard, it's really all of Israel. The people of God killed God when, we sent, when he sent God. It was the church who didn't want their savior. It wasn't pagans' problem. Do you notice? Caesar didn't kill Jesus. Pilate washed his hands of it. It was the religious folks who said, no, we're good enough on our own. Oh, but if by the power of the Holy Spirit, if I could believe that the cross was a chosen instrument of my forgiveness, then I could see God's good intention. Then I don't have to be threatened by the fact that I did the wrong thing. Parents, are you guys with me at all? Like, our children, when they are convinced that daddy loves them, they don't have to fear a break in the relationship because they did the wrong thing. No, I did the wrong thing. I was selfish. I punched sister. Whatever. Yes, she put you in a triangle afterwards, and I think she won two points at the end, but you still started it. I do not have to fear for my relationship with my father when he tells me I'm guilty of something. Why? He's proven his love already. He's proven that his love isn't going anywhere. That's the point of Hosea. His love's going nowhere. Though the whole world is a liar, God is true. That's what the New Testament tells us about his faithfulness. So I want you to think about your emotions and your psychology when you are young and you uh, tragically signed up for a bunch of student debt like I did. You're always in the back of your head, you have two numbers in the back of your brain when you have student debt. How much am I earning per year and what is my total debt? Because those are the two numbers that you use to ask yourself, is there any hope at all? And so you do what? This is, by the way, there's hard data for all of this. Gen, Gen uh, sorry, Gen uh, Y, my generation was bad at it. Gen Z is getting even worse, the young 20s. 
we are going on vacations we cannot afford and driving cars we cannot afford because there, we have no hope of paying off our student loans, so we don't even try. People under the age of 30 are setting records right now for not going on Zillow and not going on Redfin. Young people do not believe they'll ever be able to buy a house. But they are at the Royal Caribbean website. I believe it was said 2,000 years ago, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There is no hope for the future, so live for the moment. Why on earth would you not, as the, the Sadducees did, why would you not fight for your innocence in the moment if there's no possible absolution of guilt? My mind and heart can't go there. You cannot tell me I killed God. You can't, because I don't know the answer. Church, we're going to have to tell people the answer. I know it's backwards. Chronologically speaking, I need to know I was made by him, so he has all the rights as creator. I need to know I rebelled just two chapters later, wanting to make myself God. I need to know that he faithfully gave his word through the law of Moses, not because I could follow it, but just to show me that I can't in my fallen state. Promising through broken leaders like Saul and David that there's going to be a perfect leader one day. All of this, I'm saying this in chronological order. The prophet's saying he's going to save us, he's going to save us. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two-thirds of the way, and he finally saves us. But let me tell you the struggle that we're in when we do evangelism backwards, and this is the struggle. When I tell you Jesus loves you and you don't know that you're guilty before a righteous God, you're going, okay, cool. I am not offended by you believing in a God who loves me. Nothing offensive about that. So I told you something that was 100% true, Jesus loves you, and I also didn't help you. I have to tell you that his love for you was illustrated through a cross, and how does the cross make sense that Jesus could be punished for your sins unless you are a sinner? The Sanhedrin don't believe really that they are sinners, and that's a problem. Huge problem. Here's your next step. Jot this in your notes if you want. I would encourage you to do this in light of the gospel setting me free from this guilt. Accept everything Jesus has said about you. Accept all of it, the hard stuff and the good stuff, and become a Christian today. If you're investigating faith but have not taken the step of becoming a Christian, it is possible that you've been struggling with guilt. Man, I have done wrong things, or the, these Christians and the, their Bible keeps telling me I've done wrong things. The love of Jesus in the cross is the answer for that. That is the point of the cross. This was not an unlucky Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago. That's not what happened. It was a purposeful deity who loved his children more than life itself. That's what happened. And that's the answer. You don't need to be afraid of your guilt at Christ's cross. Yes, it's true. No, you don't need to be afraid of it. Number two, my pain at the cross is not a threat when I believe the gospel. My pain at the cross 
is not a threat when I believe the gospel. Look at verse 41 with me. The apostles left the high council rejoicing. What? That God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Could you find a more counter to the American ethos Bible verse if you tried? I'm an American. If God is happy with me, my paycheck has gone up. I got promoted. I moved to a better neighborhood. I got a nicer car. Clearly, that would be, right? Do we need more evidence that the prosperity gospel was invented by Americans? We've made a Jesus in our own image. We've invented what we think God would look. If, if there was a God, and if he liked me, I'd be driving something nicer. That is so American. Yikes. Heaven help us. This is an aside, but it's important. One of the most important things that ever came off the lips of General Douglas MacArthur, Supreme Command, Commander of Allied Powers operating out of Tokyo seven years after World War II. He saw a nation that was so dejected and so defeated in an honor-shame culture where they didn't know what to do with defeat. He said to a friend back in D.C., and I quote, if America sends 10,000 Christian missionaries, we will have the country. It didn't happen. You know what we did give them? Capitalism. You're welcome. What a, what a lousy booby prize. We, we didn't give you the best. We gave you the sloppy seconds, the cheap leftovers. Let's go to Philippians 3. This is really important. Turn with me over to Philippians 3. Talk about pain and disgrace and shame, and these apostles are praising God for it. How crazy, how countercultural. Listen to Paul, a first century pastor, chapter 3, starting at verse 7. He's just laid out a list of all these good things that he did, morally good things. Verse 7 I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. How cool is that? Good behavior on Jesus' part changes how proud of myself I'm able to be. Does that make sense? Anybody here, were you good at basketball until you joined the varsity team and then you weren't good at basketball? No, just me? In eighth grade, I thought I was decent. Tenth grade, uh, Greg hit the books. <laughs> That's exactly how it went down. Anybody seen somebody in college? College basketball. And they are really good, and they can throw up 30 points a game, which is a lot in college. And they hit the NBA, and the NBA hits them. He just said, all of my good stuff, I consider it worthless, not because I just got a new perspective on life from a self-help book. I saw what Jesus did after the cross. How do I look at my own good behavior, good, air quotes, behavior, and take pride in that? Are you kidding? 
I didn't die for rebels. How could I think highly of myself after watching Jesus cross? That was child's play. I threw some money in the plate. Whoop-dee-doo. I went on a mission trip. Whoop-dee-doo. And by the way, Paul's better than all of us. He probably had the Old Testament memorized. Probably. And he says, all of my moral achievements, worthless. Why? I just watched the cross and the resurrection happen. How am I? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, this is straight out of this verse. I pour contempt on my pride. I hate how arrogant I was when I look at the cross. Verse 8, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. It's important. I'm no Greek scholar, but I've heard this one. the Greek word that's usually talking about rubbish is very, very similar, if not identical, to what is talked about when, when uh, Jesus talks about hell. Rubbish is what is thrown into Gehenna. Gehenna is the trash heap of all things worthless and dirty and filthy outside of the city. So what is garbage is stuff that is going to hell. It belongs there. Your trash belongs at the dump, and the garbage that Paul sees his own, all of his works, that's all going to hell. That's all that my good works could take me to if that's all I had to lean on. Garbage goes to the dump, and this kind of worthlessness goes to Gehenna. Just so you know, that's, that's in the back of his mind as a Jew. Uh, everything in the infinite, knowing the Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting his Verse 9, and become one with him. Yikes. Does that mean your deity? Say no. No, you're one with him in his righteousness. His moral perfection, he has clothed you in it if you have put your faith in him. That's the oneness. I no longer count on my own righteousness. This is how we know that that's what he's talking about. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. A guy who is holier than you and me wants to suffer so that he'll be more with, in, in a unity with his Savior's experience? He sees suffering in this world as something we've got to do now. Be like Jesus in that way because I want to be like Jesus in his resurrection. This is a young man's sin. Okay, I'm not 40 yet, but through the gift of cancer, insert chuckle here, I've gotten to contemplate my mortality a bit. Who here can testify, whether through disease or, Ill, or age or both, you're a little bit better at contemplating mortality now than you were 20 years ago? Anybody? Think a little bit more about your legacy. Think about, okay. He is saying, man, I want me some resurrection. Us young bucks, we don't think about resurrection. We're like, oh, man, life, yay, I want to do this, I want to go there, I want to do... You get closer and closer to death, and you go, that resurrection idea sounds nice. New body that doesn't feel pain, walks through walls and gets a fish breakfast? Okay. I could sign up for that. That's in, anyway, it's in the Bible. So, <laughs> Fish breakfast, maybe it's a Jewish thing. I can, listen, I'm going to be flexible. I go to heaven, I'll be flexible. Right? 
I have my ideas about lunch always being barbecue ribs and a Pepsi. Jesus may or may not sign on with my ideas. It's his heaven, not mine, okay? But based on Jesus' resurrection body, you get to walk through walls. What? There's no decay. There's no pain and suffering. And they could still recognize him. You guys ready for a little theology bomb? Jesus is a male for eternity, and he's Jewish for eternity. His gender and his ethnicity are a part of his God-given beautiful identity that will always be there. Cool. Praise the Lord. The more we think about the resurrection, the more we go back a couple steps and go, wasn't there suffering that necessitated a resurrection in the first place? Paul expects suffering and says he even longs for it. He thinks it's spiritually good for him. Do we believe that? Man, if if God gave honorary master's degrees for whining and complaining, I would have three of them by now. I have whined and grumbled with the best of them, especially the last year and a half. And you know what the bad part about knowing the Bible a little bit is? When you whine and you complain, especially about your physical health, the Holy Spirit is right there saying to you what he said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. And do you know the Holy Spirit doesn't mind repeating himself a hundred times a day if that's what it takes to get your heart on straight? Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit has said to me many times in the last 18, 19 months. Hey, Greg, if Paul can have a thorn in his flesh, do you think you're better than him? Right? I have James telling me to pray for healing in faith and don't be double-minded, and I have to do that. But God owes me nothing. His grace for me, that grace that is sufficient, might be a consistent dose of suffering that reminds me I'm not God. Maybe that's the blessing he has for me. And lest we be tempted to believe we love ourselves more than God loves us, lest we be tempted to believe that I am more wise than God is, what if being reminded I'm not God is exactly what I need? He's the great physician, and I'm telling him to heal cancer. And he's like, Greg, I can think of 107 things in your soul more deadly than cancer. Because Jesus told us it's sin that kills us. (laughs) I pray for the pain that I feel. And Jesus says, hey, let me help you feel some different types of pain so you know what the real villain is in this story. Your rebellion against me. What I do in the physical world, that's secondary, and you're going to trust me on that. Oh, Jesus doesn't make it easy, does it? Every step of the way, it's like he wants us to trust him. Silly Jesus. I want us to think about the common statement that I hear from those that are 60 and up. When they just got to spend a day with the grandkids, spoiling them, rotting them, sugaring them up, and sending them back home before they crash. I hear everybody this age says the same thing. 
man, grandparenting is your reward for not killing their mom and dad. I suffered through the 80s so that I could be a grandparent here now, and praise the Lord, I get some grandbabies. What if there's a tiny bit of truth to that? What if the parent is the one who's got to be there 24-7 with a front row seat to your child's sins and they have a front row seat to yours? Does that sound easy? What if they're pushing buttons that make your sins come out and your spouse isn't tempted toward the same sins and so then they're mad at you or you're mad at them? Or a family can be like taking four, five, six, however many sinners and putting them in a box and just shaking it. <laughs> family can be that way sometimes. Because everybody in that box besides the Holy Spirit is a sinner. But a Christian family, we got the Holy Spirit in there. and We're hoping to bump against him and some of that love, kindness, goodness, gentleness, patience, all of the fruit of the Spirit. We want it to rub off on us and be born inside of us. What if there's a little bit of truth that parenting is this exhausting calling, this very difficult but joy-filled calling, this very sacred calling, and that frankly, unless something goes sideways, a grandparent gets to play a more secondary role. Some of you might be raising your grandbabies, and we honor you and we celebrate you. If you're in a position where your kids are raising your grandbabies and everything's going halfway decent, you get to step in, enjoy the grandbabies, and you get to step out. What if Jesus has a longer-term view for our pain and suffering than we have? Would anybody be shocked if I told you that God has a longer view for your growth than you have? Would anybody be surprised? One of God's names for himself out of Daniel 9, we preached just a couple years ago, is the Ancient of Days. That's one of the names for the Father. That's a mind-bending concept. Older than old because time is something he created and then put us in it for our blessing. That's how we work. That's not how he works. What if Jesus has a longer-term view for my suffering and for your suffering what if he, I don't know, knows the future, so he knows what he's going to birth inside of you? What if Jesus is really, really excited about the character that he's building in you, and you can't see it yet? All you can feel is the suffering. That sounds like the human experience, doesn't it? I am bound by time, so I know what I'm dealing with right now. And Jesus says, oh, but I know the future, and I know what I'm building in you, and I love you so much. Anybody here? ever tried to correct the behavior of a three-year-old because of what you saw of their future, right? I don't want you to punch sister because a few years from now, if you punch somebody, you get locked up. Later on, there are bigger consequences to your life trajectory. If you learn love and humility and gentleness a few years from now, that is also going to have a beautiful, large harvest. What if God, I don't know, is our father. Not our genie, not our vending machine. What if he's our father? 
And what if he can see that suffering in the moment, he can birth beautiful things through it? Because you see, we had these two brothers rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer like their Savior suffered. They suffered for what? The name. The authority and renown and fame of Jesus, they suffered for it, and they were rejoicing. I can't believe he let me suffer for the name. Brothers and sisters, because we are in such a filthy, rich country, I know the economy is whack right now, but let's not lose perspective, okay? Most of us, if we ever used the restroom and it was a hole in the ground, it's because we were on a mission trip, okay? The wealth is still astronomical. And avoiding suffering is a very consistent, if not addictive, behavior out of us. The developed world doesn't want to suffer, doesn't want things to be hard, doesn't want to wait. Fun little tidbit, I got one of my podcasts last night. Didn't creep me out at all. The phrase, can I default on my credit cards? Like, can I just not pay and what happens? That was Googled last month, January, more than any month since Google has existed. The second highest month was May of, 20, of 2008. Why? We don't want the pain of the moment. We want to be happy and we don't want to pay for it. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. The Holy Spirit of the living God is bigger than our cultural mess. He's bigger than our junk. He's bigger than the beliefs that we walked into this room with. And he is going to convince us that our Father loves us over and against Satanic claims that if I'm suffering, God doesn't see me. God doesn't hear me. He's too weak to solve this. No, no, no. He is a father, and he knows that this is going to bear beautiful fruit in your life. It's about Jesus' glory. You see that? They suffered for the name. Oh, I'm so glad he's on his throne and he knows what he's doing. I'm so glad because, man, do I try to take his throne from him. Do I try to tell him what to do? I know none of you guys are a mess, but I'm a mess. I try to tell Jesus how to run his universe. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that my guilt, which is true, is not a threat because of the forgiveness you've offered at the cross. Jesus, thank you. I don't have to be worried about the pain being meaningless but to suffer for the name means that pain is full of meaning. God, I for one, I really look forward to being in glory and talking to Paul about the death minus one that he received five times. I want to talk to Paul about the shipwreck. I want to talk, God, to John and Peter about this beating. They just got flogged. I, Lord, I so many things I want to know and understand because I know they're going to create worship inside me. God, I ask you for the sake of your own glory to take foundation and make us a church that is not afraid of suffering in the least. Not that we're masochistic, that we'd be a people defined by prayer, full of faith, God.
that the suffering that you've ordained in this broken world has purpose. God, help us to believe, Romans 8, that we'd say that all things are worked together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose for them. Father, forgiveness for these coffee cup verses we don't actually believe. Forgive us and give us the faith to trust them. God, we need your help. This whole Christianity thing apart from Christ really, really is lousy. Jesus, we want you as the leader over our lives, the leader over our church, as you ought rightly be. Birth glad obedience in our hearts, God, especially those of us who are parents and grandparents and we're about to walk over to the Pringle building. God, allow our faith in you to explode all over our kids, that they be raised in homes where Jesus is on the throne and we're okay with that. God, protect our kids from our storms where we're faithless. Hold them in your hand, Jesus, despite the weaknesses of mom and dad. Oh, Father, thank you for being exactly that. Thank you for being Father. We ask your Holy Spirit to teach the word rightly, God. I could have so easily said so many things today, Lord, that were broken, And I ask you to make those things fall away and make them forgotten immediately. And Holy Spirit, keep teaching us all week long what you were actually saying through this text. What was true, allow it to resonate. That we'd be transformed for your glory and the blessing of the city and the world. Jesus, we love you, but help our love to grow. In your precious name we pray, God's people said.